Hey, it's Anita and this is the Anita Posh Show. Hello everybody and welcome again to another episode of the Anita Posh Show, where it is my pleasure to keep you up to date with topics around Bitcoin. My guest today is Philippe Bicasi. Philippe is the CEO of XBTO Group, a company that is active in market making, OTC trading, venture capital and Bitcoin and Ethereum mining. And Philippe is also the CEO of a company called Stablehouse. As always, you can watch this interview on YouTube or you can follow us in your favorite podcast player. You can find all the links to these different players at anita.link slash subscribe. And now a short word from my sponsors and then on to the show. Enjoy. Local Bitcoins is an easy, fast and safe way to buy and sell Bitcoin directly from person to person. Join Local Bitcoins to bring Bitcoin everywhere and secure your financial freedom. Winter is ending, spring is coming, but your crypto storage shouldn't melt like snow and keep cool. The safest way of storing cryptocurrencies long term is offline in a physical way. That's why Coinfinity developed the Card Wallet, the professional cold storage solution. The Card Wallet supports various security features, such as high-quality materials and tamper-proof features, which prevent the manipulation of the card. Get yourself a Card Wallet now. You will get 20% off if you order at cardwallet.com slash Anita. That's cardwallet.com slash Anita. Do you want to stay up to date with the things that happen in Bitcoin from my point of view? Then subscribe to Anita's Weekly, my newsletter with articles, videos, quotes, short tips on how to use Bitcoin and all that for free. Subscribe to Anita's Weekly at anita.link slash weekly. Hello, Philippe. Welcome to the Anita Post Show. Hi, Anita. How are you? I'm very fine. I hope you too. It's winter and cold, but yeah. <laughs> with, with the new prices, we can be happy, can't we? Correct. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Okay, Philippe, please introduce yourself to our listeners and to our viewers. I'm Philippe Bacazzi. I'm the CEO and founder of a company called XBTO, and I also run a company called Stablehouse. XBTO is a proprietary trading company I started six years ago that focuses on trading of digital assets, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and others. And we've become quite, quite large over the years, and we are very active, and we trade all markets around the world and we invest and we mine and we've uh, branched out in, in different activities that we consider as just diversification. So yeah, it's really exciting. And Stablehouse is a basically a stablecoin centric clearinghouse and exchange that really focuses on more the utility of digital assets instead of the trading, pure and speculative. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you basically founded XPTO and then you were bored and founded uh, Stablehouse? <laughs> I wasn't bored. I think you can't be bored in this yeah. space. Certainly that the space moves so quickly that you have always something to a new shiny object 
that you can focus and develop things on. And, and that's what's exciting about this place. I, there's no, I don't have a minute to be bored. Yeah, exactly. Me too. So let's talk a little bit about your personal history. What did you do before and when did you find out about Bitcoin? Yeah. So I started my career now 20 years ago, basically, um, not divulging my age, but uh, <laughs> I started out in trading at a hedge fund in, in the US and in, in New York, a uh, fairly large one, mostly focused on equities and, and global macro. I was specifically focused on derivatives and I've always been interested in in trading and, and meshing technology with trading, which I find a very interesting activity and it keeps your mind really active and you're always thinking about ways to beat the market. Maybe it's not the right word. It's better to beat the market <laughs> if you can. So I started in a hedge fund and then I developed into advisory and I started my co company 2010 and made investments in renewable energy, which is really interesting because we're going to get to it when it comes to mining and got Introduced to Bitcoin in mid 2010, I was sent the white paper, which I read fairly quickly and did not really pay attention to it. Although I did uh, see some interest in it, but I wasn't focused enough on it. And to me, I need I need patterns and trends to start focusing on something. It's something out of the blue doesn't really pique my interest. It really has to be a, a number of, of points that creates a trend. And then I, I start really digging into it. Read the white paper, but I didn't read it like very much in deep, in depth. And then um, a couple months later, I was told again about it. And it still was very early on, 2020, 2011. We're still very much in the early days of Bitcoin when it was tr really trading. Well, it was, it was barely not, you couldn't even tell what price it was trading. It was very illiquid. In any case, we, I think I was looking at the price of Bitcoin as like below 10 and then at 30 and then at a hundred. And basically when, my, when a friend of mine came to me and said, Oh, have you heard about Bitcoin? Did you, have you done anything with it? Cause that's really, it really fits you because it's finance and, and technology. And, and I said, it's funny that you mentioned this because I received the white paper about six months ago and I went back to the white paper. I started digging into it. And, and then I started doing a little bit of mining, a little bit of tinkering. And it took me a while to actually figure out what I really wanted to do with it. It was really early on and, and people were doing all kinds of things. It was very much early and it was hard to really even find partners to work with because it was a small community. And it was a community that was quite marginalized at the time because people really didn't understand Bitcoin, right? The way they're starting to understand it today. Back in the day, you can talk to a bank credibly and say, hey, yeah, my business is Bitcoin. They would look at you and think you're crazy. And so it, it took a while and it took a lot of networking and, and thinking. And then I created XPTO in, in February 2015. And uh, from then on, it was just, yeah, just iterating like crazy. Mm -hmm and trading and uh, finding new ways to, to build the ecosystem, which is very important. And we'll get to it. And have there been other properties in Bitcoin besides the fact that you were a trader and working for a hedge fund before? So you were in the traditional financial system, working in the traditional financial mm -hmm. system. Have there been other properties that interested you where you thought, wow, this is going to change the world basically or something like that? A apart from Bitcoin. No, really in different. Bitcoin, but apart from the trading side. What really interested me in Bitcoin specifically is the concept of counterparty risk. And when you went through a 2008 event and you're working 
in an environment that is completely built on counterparty relationships because um, you have a relationship when you're in a hedge fund, you're a relationship with a prime broker, you have a relationship with executing brokers, you have a relationship with banks and custodians. And you, when you go through an event where there's significant distress in the system, you start it's you start thinking about things you had never thought about. When you think about, oh, I'm going to trade this uh, euro at 120, I'm I'm going to sh- try to make uh, 50 pips on it. Yeah, that's a very very narrow mind of thinking. That's really trade technicals. But when you think about, okay, I'm going to trade this, but who am I trading against? Is this person going to be able to settle this trade? Am I going to get my PL? And these things start coming into the trade, then it gets a lot more complicated. And you think about, wow, this is wild because now there are so many different parameters that are coming into play. And I have to think about all of these. I have to choose which counterparty I want to trade, which custodian I want to put my assets in. It really broadens the trading environment. And you want to, obviously, you want to mitigate your risk as much as possible. Yeah, when Bitcoin came out, it was in a way revolutionary because you did not have to trust any one person. Bitcoin made it so that you had a, a settlement layer that basically within 10, 20 minutes would give you finality on a settlement. So your trade didn't really matter. It really didn't matter who you're trading with in the sense that if you could get certainty that they were good for the money and you could see it on the blockchain, when the transaction was done, it was done. It was not going to get undone. So that's real good and important certainty. And this is something that today people are starting to think about again, and maybe a little bit differently in the way than they, they were thinking about in 2008, where it was more of sort of counterparty risk, direct counterparty risk, Lehman and, and banks just going under because nobody really understood what kind of derivatives risk, what kind of books uh, risk were in their books, and if they were a- even able to stay in in business the next day. Right. It was that dire is okay. How much cash do they have? We don't know. Money was going in and out the door and out the door more than in, obviously. And so when you have this issue, the problem is that it precipitates further. You start doubting. It really becomes very difficult for the counterparty that's affected to recover from it. It really requires a huge amount of money or external backing. And that's what's going on here, right? In this pandemic is. The Fed is saying, no problem, we're coming in with a trillion or two trillion or three trillion. And I stopped counting because at this point, the money supply has expanded by 20 to 40% in the last year. It's okay, great. All right. So the Fed is really backing this and they really want to make sure that people stay employed and keep and have their confidence restored and retain a, a way to to continue their life, even though it has created significant strain on the economy. So Bitcoin, in these both cases, provide value. And that's really critical, right? There's the counterparty risk issue. And then there's the fact that the monetary supply is fixed. You have a known scarcity that is not going to move unless the the ecosystem, the developers, the, the miners, and the users decide that, yeah, it makes sense at this point to upgrade the encryption or increase the monetary supply. It's not set in stone, but it is very difficult to move. That's what's critical about Bitcoin. It's a decentralized but very democratic asset, so much so that it is very difficult to change. And we've seen it through the scaling wars 
of a couple of years ago where the network was there were there were so many transactions so many people wanted to trade that the fees were going through the roof and and people were a lot of people were concerned about it they were they were thinking that it, it should scale the way visa would scale and by centralizing by making blocks bigger by just basically going in a way where which was basically antithetical to the way bitcoin should operate which is a way where there are as many users as possible validating transactions. And I think this is, there is a fine line. There is a, an optimum point where sort of diversification and decentralization stop having value and starts really impacting the network. But it has to be, that has to be the, the optimization. You have to optimize for censorship resistance. You have to be able to stop one or a couple of players from taking over the network. And that's critical. And yeah, Bitcoin is all about its security. That's really what makes its value. It's not its transaction perspective second. It's not its speed. It's not even its technology, underlying technology, which is now 12, 12 years old or so. Obviously it upgrades slowly, but it's important because it's consistent. It's deliberate. And it can't be iterating too quickly at this point. The, the network is too large and there are too many vested interests in having that status quo. Very well said. Yeah. <laughs> and you mentioned the transaction fees in 2017. Actually, up until today, I haven't heard anybody complain about the transaction fees at the moment. That's interesting because price yeah, in, in Bitcoin. Bitcoin. In Bitcoin. Yeah. Mm hmm. Yes, so Bitcoin managed to scale through SegWit and through other improvements that were minor, but in a way important. And people started understanding that Bitcoin is not a payment system. You're not going to buy your coffee with it. You're not going to buy a ton of things with it. You're going to consider it as digital gold. It's something that is collateral, that is transparent, that is known, uh, that has a price, And you use that collateral right now to mostly to trade, but you could use it for a lot of people right now. We've seen it in the last couple of years, loans and borrowing against dollars. So people are using it in, in, in a way that is more appropriate to what it is than maybe before where they, they were hoping that they could move a couple cents and move a dollar worth of Bitcoin to do this and to do that. It doesn't make, it does, that does not make any sense based on its underlying technology. But Ethereum, for example, has a real problem of scaling right now because people use it a bit differently than Bitcoin. And it has, and while it is faster than Bitcoin in its, in its framework, at some point you're gonna, you're going to reach a level where It's still a decentralized blockchain. Some, some will disagree that it's very decentralized or as decentralized as Bitcoin, but that's still one of the axes of what you're trying to achieve. Censorship resistance. It has to be. Otherwise, you might as well just use an Amazon cloud and, and just be very centralized to do whatever, uh, you want to do, which is, and right now you've seen it with DeFi. Uh, there's so much problems with the network right now in Ethereum that it's starting to spill over into other networks, other protocols, level one protocols, Polkadot and Solana and Cardano and all these for the longest time haven't done very well, EOS. 
And now they're starting to go back up again because there's a little bit of a concern that Ethereum's not going to be able to scale. And it's still a proof of work system, much like Bitcoin, right? Where you're actually solving a puzzle using electricity and GPUs or ASICs for Bitcoin. And, and that has real limitation in a way, but it's also a good thing. We can get to that later if that's of interest, but we're a miner. We both, mm -hmm. we, we mine both Bitcoin and Ethereum. And of course, right now, mining Ethereum is just, it's just amazing because it's, the fees are through the okay. roof, but it is not sustainable. Mm -hmm. We'll make money, uh, I suspect for ne next six months, maybe a year, but at some point, uh, unless it scales, it's going to, it's going to lose, it, it's going to lose network to, to other protocols. I mean, can you please tell me and for listeners the difference between proof of stake and proof of work? And no, start with Ethereum. Now they also have proof of work. Where's the difference in between Bitcoin's proof of work and Ethereum's proof, proof of work? Is that? So Bitcoin and Ethereum both started as proof of work systems. They have different algorithms and proof of work basically is when you're basically solving Uh, a puzzle using electricity and hardware and to secure the system. And that has its limitations. As I said, it depends on the cost of power, the availability of power, the cleanliness of power these days. A lot of being, there's a lot of talk on where is this power sourced? Is it dirty power? Is Bitcoin bad for the environment? Yep. And that's a big discussion. I'm happy to touch on that for a bit, a little later, maybe. And, and there's a scalability issue. So, Proof of stake takes that away completely and says, okay, now we're basically, there are different economics and, and different ways to do proof of stake, but just generally it's, you can think about it a little bit like a couple of banks having a vested interest in making a network run. If a bank follows KYC ML properly, they stay in the network and banks trust each other. They do counterpart, they, they have a counterparty relationship. They settle trades. But if they're starting to be operating in a way that is not acceptable, then it gets cut off. Proof of stake is a little bit the same way. You're, you're, but in this case, you're actually putting money as a node, as an operator, as a validator. And you're saying, I want to be part of this network as a validator. And I'm going to put $10,000, $20,000 in token and I am going to validate. And if I'm not operating or doing the right thing, I'm going to get penalized. And, and, and that stake gets, can get surrendered or, or lost to, to the network. So that's basically what it is. What it, but what that does is that it allows to scale the system dramatically because now you don't have any hardware constraints. But it's not so secure as I understand because, because, It's unproven to a certain degree because while there are a lot of proof of stake systems, they're still very much centralized and they're obviously not as big as Bitcoin and don't hold as much value as Bitcoin. The two biggest blockchains today remain Bitcoin and Ethereum and they're both proof of work. Mm -hmm. After that, it's, there's a lot of proof of stake, but they all, a lot of people are concerned about their centralized nature. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you were touching your own mining facilities. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? And we didn't time it quite right, but for us, it was a bit of a diversification opportunity. In mid-2017, we were 
at that point only traders. We were just trading on multiple exchanges and we said we, we got the opportunity to make an investment in the mine. We had secured extremely low electricity costs and low real estate costs, very low uh, or an inexpensive lease. And in a place where there was naturally colder air, so it's a sort of colder climate, which is good because you don't want to use a lot of electricity cooling your equipment because that's becomes inefficient. So you want to maximize and optimize for all these variables as much as you can. And so we made, we made a certain investment in this mine that's in, you know, upstate New York. And it's, it's, it was mostly a GPU mine, but through the, there was obviously there was a bear market between 2017 and, and today, a pretty significant one and one that, that we thought was over. And then there was another dip lower and that created a lot of distress. In mining, and we were able to luckily obtain some some inexpensive gear that we were able to salvage and put on our mine. And so we've done quite well. We've always had a very low cost of electricity, which is critical to making money. Even though the the hash rate goes up, the difficulty rate goes up, which is as more and more players or more and more miners join the network, it makes the difficulty rate go up, which makes the existing profitability go down for the existing players. That's like the algorithm behind that, that's sort of securing Bitcoin. So yeah, so we, we were always very considerate about the way we were, we're going to mine. That power is hydropower. It comes from Niagara and it was power that basically wasn't used. If we weren't using it, no one else was going to use it because as you, electricity doesn't really get stored. You can, you can store it with batteries, but you can't store all of it. And it's very inefficient today to store, to store electricity. From our perspective, we were using green energy that was not being used. We're not taking away from anyone. We're not raising the prices to, to anyone. And, and yeah, we were securing a network. We were securing the, a, a very valuable, monetary network that we thought. And I think that's been validated. But at the time, we thought we're going to go deep down to Bitcoin and call it blockchain, if you want, a whole and be a meaningful player that was diversified and that was contributing to the ecosystem in different ways. Liquidity provider, miner, investor, mm. That's sort of our goal and that's our, our, our objective. Yeah, it's cool because you then have uh, your own mind Bitcoin that you can sell. Or trade. Correct. Uh, yeah. You know, look, at the end of the day, we're not a huge miner. We're certainly not as big as some of those dedicated miners out there. But it is good to be in this business because you understand the economics, you understand the issues that other miners face. And therefore, for the rest of the business, then you can provide better better value to them and say, hey, do you need a derivative to hedge your your hash rate, your, uh, your Bitcoin price through options, through futures, through other... Uh, structures. We it was it had a double bottom line in a way. Okay, so that it was if it made money, great. But also we were understanding a little bit better, and we were contributing. Mm -hmm. so. Interesting. So there are also financial products, of course, for miners for the mining industry. I never thought about that. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, interesting. And now a short break for the fact of the week, sponsored by local bitcoins. Bitcoin can be used like a savings account that is available to you 24-7 through your mobile device. But did you know that Bitcoin can be more than just a savings tool? Using Bitcoin can benefit you in many ways. 
If you have friends or family living abroad, Bitcoin is the best way to send and receive money across borders. Traditional money transfer services take days and charge large fees. In some cases, they might even be dangerous if you have to go collect your payment to a physical location in a dangerous neighborhood. Bitcoin is truly global and borderless money that can be transferred securely from one mobile device to another around the world. Thanks to local Bitcoins for this fact of the week. If we take the word clean mining, this could be like what you are doing with water from the Niagara. But there's now a new non-profit organization called the Digital Currency Miners of North America who say from themselves they will uh, do clean mining. Basically, they will take the OFAC blacklist of Bitcoin addresses that the government says you are not allowed to, to use or to send money to because they are from Iran or anything from the bad guys. Are you going to do this too? Will you join this mining non-profit trade group or are you not interested in censoring transactions basically? Yeah, look, I think there are better ways to address this particular issue because censoring, censoring an address doesn't do anything because this address can be totally throwaway. So when an address is tainted, we'll just say tainted, it's been an address that was involved in proceeds of crime or terrorism or whatever, then when you put it on the OFAC list, all you're doing is saying to the perpetrators, you can't use this address anymore. And so... <laughs> They're just going to change. It, you're not solving anything. You can do that. Sure, you could, but it doesn't really do anything at the end of the day. At least I don't think so. And, and that's one of the issues that I have with a lot of these tracing software that say, oh, this is coming from a, 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 an address that is being blacklisted. The problem is that there are very finite amount of coins out there. There are 21 million Bitcoins. And at some point, you can't control that any one of these Bitcoins is not going to be involved in some way, shape, or form. Even in the most minute way, a couple cents in a in, in a wallet containing one Bitcoin, right? And then this whole wallet and this whole Bitcoin becomes tainted. And then this Bitcoin moves to a properly, perfectly whitelisted address. And then what? This is this gets tainted also, and then every everything gets tainted at the end of the day. So, I don't think it's a very effective way to to deal with the issue. Although I will look into it, I'm ha I'm always interested in making sure that we do not contribute without even knowing it to bad actors. But bad actors are everywhere. They're very much so in the U.S. dollar in cash. Drug money is largely being transacted in in U.S. dollars. And we're not doing any of this, although it's a very different system. Obviously, we're not blacklisting U.S. dollars <laughs> cash. So it's very, it's a complicated, it's a complicated issue. It's not, I don't think there's necessarily the a right answer, but there are certainly things that I think in this space that we really need to think about what the intent at the end of the day is and that we're not going against the whole ethos of the space. I think there, there are ways through KYC ML to say you, Mr. X, are have been involved in this and that, and therefore we can't transact with you. And then that's it. You'll focusing on their Bitcoin or their Ethereum. I don't think makes any sense because they'll find a way to go around and and hop a couple times in a different wallet that they can open very easily. And then what did you achieve? I think not much. And you're not. You're basically not 
helping yourself. You're not helping anyone. And, and not to say that they're not doing something that's very good because again, I, I haven't really looked into it in, in detail, but my gut feeling is when you're starting to put addresses, Bitcoin addresses on OFAC list, I think at the ba most basic level, I think it's useless. There's another, let's call it FUD story. Part of is true. There is some kind of minor centralization in China. But I think it's decreasing in the last months and years. And there are more and more mining facilities in North America, I think. I heard also in Pakistan, for instance, a region in Pakistan is now starting to mine Bitcoin. What's your take on mining centralization in China? Is this in any sort a danger to Bitcoin belongs to the world. So when you have too much of something somewhere, it's not a good thing. I think Chinese centralization was an issue a couple of years ago. There's still major Chinese miners. But as you said, there has been a lot of investments made in the US counterbalance that, that trend. And I think at this point, it's very hard to exactly know who controls what because pools aggregate mining power from different places and you don't exactly know where they're from. But I think today, Bitcoin mining happens in Argentina. It happens in Venezuela. It happens in the US. It happens in France. It happens in Russia, in Iran, in Japan. It's global uh, and you can't stop it. Meaning there's nothing that you can do. You can always flex your muscle if you have sufficient breadth of, you have a big army, mm -hmm. you have significant claims on people's interest. You can push your weight around and say, Bitcoin is more mine than yours. But at the end of the day, Bitcoin is not designed to be that way. You you can't really own Bitcoin because if you own Bitcoin, it's worthless. It, has, it loses all of its value. So if, if China tomorrow said we are commandeering Bitcoin and Bitcoin is ours, well, guess what? Bitcoin is not going to go to a hundred thousand. Unfortunately, it will probably go to zero, or it will go to a, a, a yuan denominated value that is maybe used within China. I don't know, but it has to be mm -hmm. global for it to be valuable to everyone. And that's the whole thing about, again, counterparty risk in a way in Bitcoin. That's the same concept is you need to make sure that not one entity, person, state actor has too much claim on the network. Exactly. And I think in the case that you just painted that China would overtake Bitcoin, then we would have maybe a hard fork and you have a Chinese Bitcoin and a global Bitcoin. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It would be completely pointless. And we've had many hard forks, by the way, on Bitcoin. As you, Even in the early days, when you look at Dogecoin <laughs> or Litecoin, these are, are basically forks from Bitcoin uh, and they're just renamed. And But they use the same underlying technology with slight mm. changes to the code. So you can always fork Bitcoin. That's easy. But what you cannot fork is the network. You can't say it's like Facebook, right? I like to use Facebook as a, as an example. Facebook is the proprietary version of Bitcoin in terms of a network. You can't fork Facebook because you don't have access to the network, you, the, the code. The code is, is owned by Facebook and they maintain the technology and they have a huge amount of users and the value to the user is that everyone else is on it, that you have your friends on it. If you don't have your friends on Facebook, why are you going to join Facebook? Same with Bitcoin. If everyone uses Bitcoin, then you have more and more adoption, right? So you create a nice network effect. What's interesting with Bitcoin 
is that it's open source. If a sufficient amount of the network says, I'm not happy with the way Bitcoin is scaling, let's take this code and make some tweaks to it. And we'll, it's like religion, right? You'll just fork out and you'll create a new religion. And and great, if it works and you manage to grow that network, that's fantastic. I, I'm not, I'm certainly not for a specific kind of Bitcoin. I think the one that we all know as Bitcoin today, the one that most people are buying, makes the most sense, at least in my mind. It's the one that is favors decentralization and where the liquidity is and, and where, where the network effect can really take on. Things like Bitcoin Satoshi Vision or Bitcoin Cash, they have a different philosophy. And, and that's great. And they decided that they thought that this was their version was better. And they went on and did it. And I don't know if it, it, I don't think it's working very well, but that's great. That's the whole uh, point of it's democratic in a way. People are voting with exactly, their money. Exactly. So let's get back a little bit to the wasted energy that's used for mm -hmm. Bitcoin. What is your take on that? There is a high electricity need. Yes, that's right. What is your opinion? What do you say to the critics? I just, I, th I think it's, uh, when you analyze something, you have to be fair in how you proceed in your, it's a little bit like developing a vaccine in a way. You have to really be objective about and go through all of the process to really ascertain whether something is of a certain if, uh, efficacy or, or not. And, and the same in anything you do, any analysis can prove, can show you one thing if you disregard half of the data. When we compare Visa with Bitcoin, you say, well, Visa is a lot cleaner than Bitcoin because, because it can transact billions of transactions per second or 150 tra million transactions per day or something. I, I don't know what it is, but okay, that's great. So Visa is a payment network and you're looking at it that way, very, in a very siloed way because Visa doesn't work in a siloed way. It, it relies on banks. It relies on intermediaries. It relies on all kinds of things that also consume power and people. So you have to look at it as a whole. Okay, what is the banking system's carbon footprint? And then what is Bitcoin's carbon footprint, right? But Bitcoin's not necessarily banking. It, 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 they have two different uses. So when you look at Bitcoin and you think, okay, Bitcoin is a store of value network. It's a digital gold, a gold 2.0 network. Then you have to look at it from that perspective. And you can't compare, as one would say, apples to koalas, <laughs> which is it's fair because it, they're completely different things. And, and there's no real way to say Bitcoin is a whole lot dirtier than Visa. It's just impossible to say at this point. Bitcoin, for the most part, uses green energy. And uh, what's interesting with Bitcoin is you are, while you are always trying to get to the lower cost of electricity, right? Because that's really your goal. You have to be more and more competitive on your cost of electricity. Then usually what ends up happening is that you end up towards things that are cleaner. Hydroelectricity is usually very inexpensive. Like solar, for example, is infinitely available. But unfortunately today, while you, you can create huge farms that get to five, four cents a kilowatt hour, it's not as uh, cost effective as hydro or geothermal, or I don't know that anyone is using nuclear at this point to mine Bitcoin, maybe indirectly, but you have to. So yeah, in a way, luckily, uh, unless you're Iran, where you have unlimited amounts of 
black gold, right, or oil, and you're subsidizing, then maybe you have a little bit of a problem there. But it's very regionalized. And so from my perspective, I think Bitcoin in general is actually quite okay. It's not a significant contributor to uh, greenhouse gas, and the carbon footprint is not that high. Actually, a lot of people say, oh, you got to go solar, you got to buy those solar panels because you need to be green. If you really were, again, objective with the data, what do you do with those panels after their utility life, their shelf life? Okay, there's the whole recycling of them. And, and that's not necessarily very clean, but people tend to forget that. So it's not a very simple equation. Uh, I would say in general, Bitcoin is not, it's not dirty. I don't think it's dirty. Mm. It's more on the green side. Actually. Yeah. And also the mining, the proof of work mining is there because it makes Bitcoin secure. And what would you have if you have a, I don't know how many billions is it now in market capitalization, 600 billion or 700 and so many people depend upon it. So if it wouldn't be secure then it wouldn't be the same. So the, there's value in securing the Bitcoin network using any means necessary because it elevates, I hope that eventually it will elevate the the quality of life uh, of people on the planet because it, it'll be a, a medium of value that everyone can agree on. Again, that's cross-border, that is not owned by a particular state. And so I think in the long run, it has significant value. And compared to gold, for example, I think... It's much better than gold. It's easier to store. It's easier to insure. It's easier to move. It's divisible. You can use it for, you know, you can use it for payments, not coffees, but you can use it for buying a lot larger payments, yeah. I would say. But yeah, it's, so it has, if you look at it from all of its different features, it's just a amazing technology that is really going to contribute to a higher quality of life because it's going to make accessibility to to financing uh, and to like decentralized banking a lot easier. It may not be based on Bitcoin per se. It may be on a second layer solution that is more adapted to smaller transactions, cheaper transactions like Lightning and all these scaling solutions. But at the end of the day, still underlying all of this is the level one Bitcoin. Layer one mm -hmm. Bitcoin. And let's not forget that gold mining has also very high environmental costs yeah, that nobody's talking about. Yeah. Yeah. That let's talk a little bit because I, that would interest me. Mining profitability. It's very complicated. It seems to be very complicated. And there's always this question. What is driving the price? The, the mining, the hash power, or is the price driving the hash power <laughs> in the mining network? Usually. Yeah. It's the chicken or the egg. Look, what incentivizes people to mine is the expectation of profit. And the biggest variable cost to mining is your cost of electricity. The, the second thing that's really important is your cost of acquiring the hardware. And that hardware, unfortunately, is not unlimited. Therefore, it raises, it rises, the cost of the hardware rises in a bull market and declines in a bear market. So I would definitely say that price drives hash power. And because in a bear market, if you cannot make money, you're turning off your machines. Most people turn off their machines. Luckily for us, we have power that enables us to pretty much always, at least so far, 
been on a cash flow positive basis. It doesn't mean that the mine is profitable on an accounting basis, but on a cash flow basis, it remains positive. So it keeps us going. So in a market that is significantly bullish, <laughs> like right now, where we're approaching, as you were saying, 50,000s, which is basically close to a trillion dollar in stored value, give or take. And that is attracting miners. And those miners are looking at the hash power difficulty rate, and they're calling their hardware manufacturers, and they're going, there are some calculators online that you, where you can quickly put in your cost of power, your cost of hardware, your current hash rate and difficulty rate, and you can see what comes out of it. And if it's, if it's worth your time to go in mind, then you're going to do that. And by, and if you do that, then you're going to bring that hash rate a little bit higher because you're contributing more to the power, uh, to the network. And therefore you're making, yeah, you're just pushing the uh, sort of hash rate higher. So yeah, it's, it really depends on price. Clearly, obviously if Bitcoin went to zero, no one would be mining. Yeah. And that's the interesting thing that when it was zero, people started to mine. <laughs> that was, it, it, look, in, and that's what's really interesting when you're trying to make a market, you're creating company, you're creating, you're trying to create a momentum from zero, from nothing. That's really hard. So that really requires a sort of an external prod or incentive from a, a founder who says, who has a vision, and he's putting all his his resources, his time, his his energy, his his money into making something that is zero into something that is potentially a unicorn or billions. And yeah, that's typical. But it's harder when you go from a billion to zero to keep that going than when you go from zero to billion. It's a different <laughs> mechanic. And, and starting from zero when you've reached the heights is so difficult. It's really a mental exercise. So that's maybe that's why if Bitcoin were to go to zero today, I don't think in its current form, I don't think it would be resuscitated. It would be, I think it would be dead. But I don't think Bitcoin is going to zero in by any uh, stretch uh, of the imagination. And I think that even if you had things like uh, a ban on Bitcoin or a certain discovery on quantum encryption that basically said, oh, I can break uh, Bitcoin's encryption system and I can basically unlock all of this value. By the way, this value would go to zero if, if it were out there. Even with that, I don't think Bitcoin would go to, to zero because again, it's an open system. You can basically decide to fork it and to take a snapshot at a certain point in time, change the encryption uh, mechanism and off you go again. And so that's fit. It is very powerful. Obviously it would be a, a mm. mess, but it, it is not, it would not be necessarily the mm. end of it. Yeah. I think Bitcoin's strength is its community of people and their mindset. Yeah. And that they mm -hmm. are willing to work on it even without earning money because that was what happened at the beginning. Yeah. It's was it's an mm -hmm. idealistic thing in a way to work in Bitcoin as like in all the open source developments. It's a very idealistic mindset people are having. Yeah. Okay, great. Let's close this uh, with a little future insight from you. What do you think uh, is going to come in the next months and years in Bitcoin? 
So I've always looked at things 10 years out because it's so difficult to predict what's going to happen tomorrow, next week, or next month. 2021 has been an incredible year so far. 2020 was just insane in its own way. But for Bitcoin, 2021 seen some significant developments. And corporates at this point are starting to really have to ponder whether or not Bitcoin is an acceptable treasury asset that they should consider on their balance sheet. And and so I think this trend with the obviously the most recent announcement by Tesla to put on a decent <laughs> amount, and we're talking six, seven percent of the liquid balance sheet or cash into Bitcoin, it's a significant move. And it's getting people to to really start asking themselves, what have I missed? What what have I missed in the last 12 years? And should we do the same? So I think institutions, corporations, and eventually governments are going to start getting off zero, right? They may get to a 1%. And if you think about all of that money going into basically only just a couple assets and they're going to start with bitcoin and then eventually they'll go into ethereum it'll find its way into other digital assets but i think bitcoin is going to be the gateway digital currency that's going to receive the most inflows initially so i think at this point while we're up significantly in the last six months because we went from ten thousand maybe in september to now almost 50,000, so 5x in less than six months. I still think that we're not in a bubble in that perspective. We could always define what a bubble is. And obviously, the dollar is in, in, in such a weird situate position right now with all of the printing. You could say that there are some inklings um, of a bubble starting to form in many different financial assets. It hasn't really shown itself in you know, consumer goods. Therefore, the CPI and all of these metrics that measure inflation are still not showing anything. If anything, maybe they're showing deflation. But in financial assets, it's a very different story. When you have companies that are basically worth almost zero going to tens and hundreds of billions of dollars for no good reason, you start wondering, maybe there's a lot too much money chasing too few assets. And with bonds and fixed income, yielding what they're yielding, and sometimes they're yielding negatively, then what do you expect is going to happen? People are looking for yield, they're looking for return. And why not Bitcoin? What else at the moment? <laughs> it's the only known scarce asset that for sure, Yeah. again, exactly. for sure, <laughs> especially in crypto, but, but with a fairly high degree of certainty that it's not going to be, that's, it's not going to change in, in the next foreseeable future. So 21 million Bitcoin to ever be mined, why not own a piece of the future? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, thank you very much. Anything we didn't cover that you uh, want to say that we maybe missed? I think we can we could do another interview if you're interested about Stable House because I think you're building uh, a currency for Bermuda. Is that right? Stable House is basically focusing on more traditional, or basically improving traditional financial rails, improving visas and SWIFT and. All that using stable coins and blockchain technology that is not 
that is not necessarily like mm -hmm. like Bitcoin and Ethereum related, more other kinds of technologies that you're, we're starting to talk about. And I think for a lot of people, they, they are still comfortable with their dollar and their euros. When they buy a coffee, they don't want to think about if they had to pay in lightning, which you could potentially buy a, a coffee with lightning if everybody, if all the merchants accepted lightning, which is not the case, then you could potentially do it. But it's a mental exercise that people are not comfortable with. So when they want to go, when they buy a coffee, they're thinking it's $3. And that's what they, they want to, that's what they want to spend. And they can spend it on in cash. They can spend credit cards. They can do a wire, which would be crazy. Or they could use a stable coin or an eventually potentially a, C, a central bank digital currency, which is still very much in the early beginnings. We'll have to see where that goes. But yeah, so this is what we're trying to focus on. And we're trying to provide value to in Bermuda specifically because it's great. It's a smaller market and it's a market where people adopt technology quite quickly. Actually, it's a fairly wealthy market and they're very open to, to the world. So yeah, we're working with the various government entities to figure out what can be done using stable house technology and existing open source mm -hmm. technology. So you are diversifying your companies basically. In the yeah, we're going into, so there's digital gold, okay, it's store of value, that's one thing. And then there's mm -hmm. you know, payments. Mm -hmm. uh, is there something that that we can improve upon in the payment space. Mm -hmm. Great. So please uh, tell us where can people find and follow your work? Mostly on Twitter, LinkedIn, on our website, fairly active on my personal, but we have, you know, corporate Twitter at XPTO group at Stablehouse IO. And, you know, we, I give podcasts once in a while uh, and yeah, I love to communicate with the uh, the community. I love to engage. Yeah, I'm looking forward to potentially doing another one with you. Anita, it was a pleasure. And uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you yes, for your time. Thank you very much as well. And have a good day. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for joining the Anita Posh Show today to learn more about Bitcoin. You can find the show notes for this conversation on anita.link slash show. If you want to get the best stories in Bitcoin from my point of view in your mailbox, go to anita.link slash weekly and subscribe. And if you have a question or just want to send me some feedback, drop me a line at hello at anitaposch.com. See you next week when it's time for the Anita Posh Show. Music, start with yes, delicate beats. Content, idea and production. Anita Posh.